0: There are some names in fashion which are much bigger than the people themselves, usually or at least a lot of the time. That infamy or renown is related to a seismic cultural shift. Christian Dior and Coco Chanel are two figures like this, and they both are prominent in the work of our next guest, Justine Picardi. Justine is the author of multiple books which have become international bestsellers. She's been an investigative journalist, a columnist, and the features director for Vogue. She's a contributing editor to Harper's Bazaar UK, having stepped down from her role as editor-in-chief of the magazine to focus on her own writing projects. The books in her backlist draw impressive reviews from important critics, as well as nominations and awards from organizations too numerous to list. She's also truly a lovely woman, insightful, and quite brilliant, as you'll undoubtedly notice in this conversation. After listening, if you're wondering about which book of hers to start with, I recommend Miss Dior, a biography of Catherine Dior, sister of Christian, who was an important member of the underground French resistance during World War II. I should tell you now, this is another two part episode. When we recorded it, we began by asking Justine about the implications, benefits, and dangers of AI for historians, journalists, and writers. All of a sudden, it was an hour later, and our team talked about it. We decided we could not, in good conscience, cut out discussions about historic innovations in fashion, fragrance, and fashion writing, which are still relevant today, sometimes almost a century after the events occurred. This episode will end with the mention of a piece of trivia that might just shock even our most well-read listeners, since Little Red Village is a bi-weekly podcast two weeks from today, we will post the second half of this interview.
1: Hello and welcome to today's episode of Little Red Village, featuring Titan of Publishing and authorship, Justine Picardi, former editor in chief of Harper's Bazaar UK, and the author of a slew of phenomenal fashion history books that we here are obsessed with. I am Jonathan Joseph, of course, your leader here at Little Red Fashion, joined
0: by the Comparable, Rachel Elspeth-Gross. Hi, Justine. We're so thrilled. We've been looking forward to this so much. Um, Oh, me too. We had a bunch of things we wanted to talk about, but one of our biggest questions, we really were interested in your view on how the role of a fashion editor has changed over time.
2: Yeah, I went into journalism when I was 21, so a very long time ago, nearly four decades ago on the Sunday Times as a reporter. And I was trained in London by the Sunday Times and I worked as an investigative reporter. I did news reporting, foreign reporting. And I had a really, really thorough training in a pre-digital era. When I started at the Sunday Times in 1983, we were working on typewriters. And if you were doing, if I was doing a story, and, and fax machines, we had fax machines and they seemed like state of the art. But very often I would have to ring in my copy as it was, you would ring down the line to copy takers, they were called. So just in that sense of, of any form of, of journalism and, and writing has changed so fundamentally since that time. But I think that obviously The digital world has changed everything, but I feel that my training as a news reporter, as an investigative reporter, has stayed with me throughout my career, which is whether I'm writing about news or fashion or the history of the Second World War or France in the 1930s, what remains the imperative is to find a way to tell a story that either hasn't been told before or has perhaps been told inaccurately. And so that is the thread that links everything I've done. Also, as a, as a child, my sister and I used to make little books together and little magazines together. And I think that the craft, literally, we would we would do all the drawings, we would write out the stories, we would sew the pieces of paper together. And it's still really important to me, the craft of whether it's making a beautiful book or making a beautiful magazine, that that there, there is a craft to it. And that's profoundly important to me. I completely understand. I, mm, it's wonderful. I mean, I think I the other I- thing that is looming now across the horizon, I mean, it's already here, is chat, GBT so the role of AI. And I had a play with ChatGBT last week just to see how good is it. And, and I asked it to, to to write something in the style of Justine Picardy. <laughs> and it, it came out with quite a creditable response. Now, I, of course, could see the flaws. It, 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 it wasn't me, but it It was not a bad impersonation of me. I also asked, and this was in advance of our conversation, I asked ChatGPT to to write about Coco Chanel. And again, the the writing is, it's not brilliant, but it's also a lot better than some very bad writing that I've read that's been written by real people. So that's going to provide a, a, I mean, in, an enormous challenge apart from anything else. I think also that it does, there was a news story today in the British press, and I'm sure it's appeared in the US as well, whereby ChatGBT has, because it's so convincing, it cites articles as if they really exist. And in fact, when you then go to check them, so The Guardian did this, there were no Guardian articles to back it up. But it, it it writes in such a convincing way that I think it potentially feels very problematic. I also think that if you're a, a real expert thus far, so I would regard myself as a real expert on Chanel, because there's a new, I've worked on a major new edition of, of a Chanel biography, which is going to be published in September to coincide with the next big exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. I also regard myself as a real expert on fashion during the occupation, during the Second World War, Christiane Dior, Catherine Dior. So my expertise at the moment will outdo that of AI, but that that may change. And I just think that we we need to be talking about how misinformation and fake histories may well take hold in ways that affect the fashion world as well as news. Absolutely. I mean, I
1: think you you touch on a key thing that has been running in fashion TikTok circles for ages now, which is this immediacy of incomplete information or the immediacy of quasi-accurate information, mm-hmm. especially about more nebulous or esoteric fashion historical topics where there's lots of misinformation to be had. And yes. I think solving that starts with media literacy. One of the reasons why we're so excited to talk to you today is because as a company that's really focused on empowering young people and kids to explore fashion, media literacy is a huge, huge part of that. And teaching them to be discerning consumers of
2: information, whether it's written or video, or whatever Absolutely. it might be. because the thing about ChatGPT is that it can only use information that has already appeared online. So a lot of my research, the vast amount of my research, if I'm writing a, a book, and very often, I mean, I just did a, I'm still a contributing editor to Harper's Bazaar, having previously been its editor-in-chief, but if I'm writing an article for Harper's Bazaar, which I've just done, for example, as a new exhibition at Kensington Palace, one of the royal palaces in the United Kingdom. It's called Crown to Couture, and it's about the link between the 18th century Georgian court, which of course has been highly fictionalised, but in a very entertaining way in Bridgerton, and red carpet couture. Now, in order to, to research this piece, and that I then was asked to do something for the exhibition, catalogue introduction, I was going back to original archival research, which is what I will do, I will always do as a serious fashion historian. Now those archives don't exist online. So the research I did for for Mr. Yor would involve looking in the archives of the French Resistance, for example, writing about Chanel's role during the Second World War and during the German occupation of Paris. I was going through both German and French and British intelligence records, and none of these are online. So the National Archives, for example, in the UK, which has a vast amount of material that I've drawn on in terms of intelligence archives, and it's the same in France, it's not online. So you can't expect AI to delve into these historical details. It's only repeating what has already been written online. So a myth can become self-perpetuating. I completely and totally understand
0: these dolls that are behind me. The the, Narcy Train dolls. Yes, which are so fascinating. I went to the Library of Congress a couple of years ago to do translating for them and to copy their all the documentation they had about it. Mm. And I know that if you go online to the various image services and you read what they say the images are, they're already not correct. I know from like handling. Yes, them.
2: exactly. And so for me in this new edition of my Chanel book, so many of images online and some sometimes in the picture libraries are totally miscredited. Somebody's made a mistake. So the date will be wrong. name of the photographer will be wrong sometimes even the person who allegedly the portrait of is it's not that person so it's pretty terrifying once you realize how how fast misinformation is already spreading and how much faster it's going to spread so in answer it's a long answer to your first question but one of my first pieces of advice for a young person is know that our vocation as a journalist or writer or editor is to find out the truth of a story, the heart of a story, that authenticity. Now, that's whether it's as a writer or as a, as a photographer or a visual artist, it's finding your own voice that matters so much. You don't want to be like anybody else. And the thing about AI is it's just creating a facsimile of somebody else it's writing or drawing in the style of other people whereas what remains profoundly human is the essence of human creativity is to express yourself in a way that only you can do that nobody else could tell a particular story in the way that one individual can and that remains as true now as it did millennia ago when people were doing the first drawings, cave drawings or, or cave paintings or, or making clay sculptures, that authenticity, searching, these words have become so overused, one's own authentic self. but Actually, if you think about what that really means, to find one's own true voice is so important for anybody that wants to create something.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's that's one reason, and this is a good point to bring it up, but accompanying this episode and every episode of the podcast, that's why we're creating scaffolded worksheets for kids from third grade all the way through high school that use articles myself or Rachel has written as the reading passage and then has them writing on prompts to discover that voice and to discover and explore vetted primary source and other materials. I think yeah. to often... We stop short of leveraging technology for the good that it can bring us while also balancing that with a very real fear of things like AI in terms of doing a one step forward, two steps back situation. It's great to have this technology to disseminate, but it's of dangerous the, the to do so indiscriminately.
2: That new media has offered where here we are talking together in different parts of the world in a very immediate and intimate way that's remarkable. And the fact is that social media has allowed people to find a voice that might have previously been excluded from mainstream media. So there is something that democratization is, is very freeing. But I think it's, it just needs, we always need to hold in our minds the downside as well as the, the great liberation that's been offered
1: absolutely I think the watchword of, of uh, this portion of the conversation really boils down to discernment and, and yes, how to have exactly. discernment in this, this digital age when so much has to be filtered through intermediaries whether it's our yes. ourselves in our limited capacity or AI and, and these technologies yeah. that are bringing it to scale which I think harkens to another question that I wanted to ask you because I think when I think back for example to your book my mother's wedding dress, the life and afterlife of clothes, I also think of the little red dress and what I was trying to do for children when I wrote it, which was tell stories through clothes. And everyone we've interviewed on this podcast always has one or a million stories about clothes that tell a story. And I think to be a discerning reader, to be a discerning consumer of media also requires being, this is my opinion, but a voracious reader. And a voracious writer, the better reader and writer you are, the more discerning you can be and you will pick up on those things when someone throws an AI-generated article at you. To understand that, do you think you could talk a little bit about My Mother's Wedding Dress, The Life of An Afterlife of Clothes and that idea of storytelling through garment?
2: Yes, the book was published in 2008, so a long time ago. And at that point, I don't think anybody else had Thought about writing a memoir where each chapter is about an item of of clothing and so the first chapter is literally my mother's wedding dress and it's such an important piece of clothing obviously for her but also for me and my perception of what it meant to be a woman so my mother got married very young 21 and she, got married in a in a little black dress and it was it was from a Chanel pattern so in the early 60s obviously Chanel was still just doing couture but you could buy what was called a line for line pattern and so my mother got a line for line Chanel little black dress in London and she was and remains she's still alive very radical idealistic she was very, very, very left-wing. One of my earliest memories is as as a child is going on anti-Vietnam War demonstrations with her in London, and and I think her little black dress. I mean, first of all, it breaks a taboo to marry in black; is is a big taboo, and she came from a, a conventional. Christian upbringing where she would have been expected to wear a white dress and get married in church and she didn't she got married in a little black dress in a civil ceremony but it made me realize that how this I mean as I later discovered little black dress has been around since the 1920s when Coco Chanel first starts designing little black dresses and there's that famous saying of Gabrielle Chanel's elegance is refusal well, that I learned that from my mother's little black dress, my mother's wedding dress, from before I was even old enough to know what fashion meant, because she was refusing to wear a wedding dress that was that of a conventional bride. So elegance is refusal. I mean, it was a very elegant dress, and I then wore it as a rebellious teenager myself to punk concerts with spiky blue hair and and still brings back so many memories and then I think the other key event in my life was the death of my sister Ruth who like me was a journalist she loved fashion she loved clothes and she died of breast cancer when she was just 33 and such was our shared love of clothes of 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 what we wore and after her death what do you do with the clothes of somebody who's died too young and these were clothes that she loved and I I couldn't bear the idea of just getting rid of them and and so it was it was a way the book was a way of, of writing about those really profound emotions love and loss and 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 death and motherhood and siblings and being a child and becoming a mother myself and i found a way in it you know literally through the threads of our lives wow i mean that's every time we hear jonathan and i have this in common every time we hear
0: someone dismiss clothing as just silly it's just excess it's only fluff it's, it's so annoying <laughs> it's so annoying there's not a single culture on this planet that does not have a relationship between what it is and what it believes in and what it chooses to adorn itself of course
2: and, and, and yet and it, of course but this idea that is still very prevalent that fashion is somehow risible absurd it's not worthy of serious study and and i think there's all kinds of reasons why fashion can make people feel uncomfortable and sometimes fashion does behave in absurd ways But if you just set aside the idea of fashion for one moment and think about what we wear, just let's use the word clothes, how we, what we're wearing and why is so profound. I mean, it's, it's so intimate. It's right next to our skin. It's, it's what we reveal, but it's also what we cover up and these our relationship with what we wear is is so profound it's so intimate it's so archetypal as well and totemic and and the talismans that we choose and and wear the pieces of jewelry that to to, to dismiss this is is just to me seems absurd <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah i mean we share that for sure i think i think that's the paradox of fashion I think it's become hyperbolic in terms Mm. of fast fashion's effect on material culture. It's almost like a form of cultural inflation. When we were back, when we had an intimate relationship with our clothing because our mother made it, or we had to make it and we had to darn our socks, or we had to engage with the fiber of material culture directly, we had such a different relationship as to now where we're so far, or at least most of us who are not. Like present company, yes. removed from production, manufacturing, and how clothes come to be. And of that course divorcing... Global
2: corporate capitalism has changed everything. It's as massive a change as what we've seen in the development of new technology, AI, that those giant monoliths of of global corporate capitalism has taken away the intimacy of, as you say, either the things that we ourselves might have made or that our mothers made or that we were, I was taught to sew in school and, and my mother taught me how to mend holes in clothes. That's what, and how to darn and how to knit. And But when those skills are lost and when the idea of fashion becomes totally embedded in the idea of celebrity, then the relationship between us and our clothing becomes much more it's it's filtered through a different prism
1: absolutely i mean i, I would venture to say that it, it becomes merely transactional
2: exactly.
1: as opposed to this rich fabric of our lives yes
0: yes it's so interesting i mean there's so many different layers of this there's so many different perspectives that you could take but i think fundamentally Almost anyone who works in fashion has an intrinsic relationship to clothing in some way. And I think people who love fashion have a very similar experience, albeit from a different angle. So when I think about these two ladies that you're such an expert with, Coco Chanel and Catherine Dior, I see a lot of parallels between them, time and place, geography. But there's also a lot of differences between the two women, especially during the occupation, Second World War. What drew you to these characters? Not that they're not real, but
2: you know, mm. characters in your writing. Do you see overlaps? Do you see difference? I, I think I do see overlaps. I mean, I, I was drawn first to, to Coco Chanel, and that will have gone back to my mother's wedding dress and obviously the fashion, but also perfume. So seeing that bottle of Chanel number no. five on my mother's dressing table when i was 18 my grandmother my mother's mother gave me a bottle of chanel number no. 19 and that made me feel so grown up so i think that a lot of people it, it may be different now but i think chanel still means something to to many people growing up it's it's certainly the, the word chanel is synonymous with the idea of french chic so i had been interested in Chanel for a long time and then I met Karl Lagerfeld in the 1990s and interviewed him and he played a really important role in my life looking back on it. I mean he was a great reader as well as a great designer. He had a massive library, he bought and consumed books in vast quantities and he was very encouraging to me as a writer. And the two great titans of of Couture are Gabrielle Chanel and Christiane Dior. And they they Dior and Chanel represent French chic, elegance, luxury, savoir faire, craftsmanship. So for me, you can't really be interested in one without the other. The two are inextricably linked. And what actually happened was that after my Chanel book was published, I received an invitation from the House of Dior to come and have a look in their archives, which were wonderful. So I spent some time looking in their archives. And what emerged out of that period in the Dior archives was I actually suggested that I thought it would make an amazing exhibition at the v at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and that's where I primarily was inspired by, because it, they had the most extraordinary visual material in terms of Christian Dior's sketches, his illustrations, and his couture pieces. And I, I did write a lot about the history of Dior, the l- links between Dior and the United Kingdom. Um, and I did a lot of journalism about Christian Dior, but I didn't, I couldn't, the idea was for me to write a book about Christian Dior, but it was only when I discovered about Catherine that I realized that was the way into the book. So to me, the book, Miss Dior, it's it's it is Miss Dior. There's three central characters in it, really. There is Christian Dior himself. There's Catherine Dior, the woman he loved best in the world, his beloved younger sister, his his first model. And then there is Miss Dior, the idealized vision of post-war French femininity that becomes synonymous with Dior's vision of post-war elegance in the immediate aftermath of the ugliness of the Second World War. So he launches Miss Dior, the perfume, in honor of his sister Catherine Dior, who's been a heroine of the French resistance and was deported arrested by the Gestapo and imprisoned in a concentration camp in Germany but he also designs a dress called Misty Ore and both the dress and the perfume become synonymous with the idea of beauty in the aftermath of the ugliness of war and so those are the ideas that I wanted to explore in my book. So whereas my Chanel biography is very much a biography of Coco Chanel, as well as examining La Belle Park. You know the fashion under the occupation. Miss Dior is many things, but it's not a straightforward biography either of Christian Dior or of Catherine Dior. It's their lives are threaded together, and so too are the lives of other. French designers during the occupation and also other women in the resistance whose stories were forgotten. So there are obviously massive differences between Coco Chanel and Catherine Dior, not least their age. So Coco Chanel was born in 1883. She was born in the 19th century and she was born illegitimate into great hardship and poverty. And her mother died when she was 11 and her father abandoned her and her siblings. Catherine Dior was born in 1917 into a very prosperous family. Her father was a a very successful industrialist. And so there are 35 years between them, which is more than a generation between them. Chanel is already a very successful designer in 1917. She's already being appearing in Harper's Bazaar in Vogue when Catherine Dior is born. So that there's that difference in time. I think that what they share is those two world wars. So although Catherine Dior wasn't born until 1917, her family had been affected by the First World War. She was the youngest of five children. And her older brother, who was actually just turned 18 when she was born, was a young soldier in the French army, and he fought in the horror of trench warfare during the First World War. And he was the only soldier in his platoon not to be killed. I mean, a third of all French soldiers died in the First World War. And they died on the battlefields of France. There's literally blood soaked in the soil. And they'd been invaded by by Germany. So and her older brother suffered from what we would call would have been called shell shock, but what we would now call PTSD. And and the family really fell apart from this very prosperous, idealised, apparently very happy family. Things started going horribly wrong. And you you can see that as a a microcosm of what happens in France, too. Even though France is the victor, in order to understand the Second World War in France, you really have to understand the First World War. And then when you think it's such a short period of time, I mean, from November 1918, which is when the First World War ends, and then the outbreak of the Second World War, just, just over 20 years later... September 1939. And so much of what we think we know about those wars, I realized that I knew far less than I thought. I mean, the other thing that Chanel and Catherine Dior have in common is that women in France did not get the vote until after the Second World War. So you've got Coco Chanel, who's built up the most successful, not just one of the most successful fashion designers in France, she is in the world and she becomes synonymous with the idea of the independent, self-made woman. As soon as the 1920s, she's synonymous with the jazz age and the roaring 20s. And she still does not have the right to vote in her own country. And then you have Catherine Dior joining the resistance, very young, with the outbreak of war and 21 she's 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 prepared to die for her country and this is a country that has not given her the right to vote yet
1: well listeners on the one hand fortunately for you our chat with historian and former editor-in-chief of harper's bazaar uk justine Picardy, was so lovely and split it into two episodes so we'll have to leave today's conversation here but before we go, let's highlight a few footnotes whose articles will be up on the blog, along with the show notes and transcripts. Kicking off today's footnotes is Dior's childhood home, located in Granville, now known as the Musée Christian Dior. Set on a cliff overlooking the Channel Islands, the pink home was known as Rues, features prominently in the couturier's life and work, with the genius himself proclaiming in his autobiography, I have most tender and amazed memories of my childhood. I would even say that my life and my style owe almost everything with site and architecture. Although his family had to leave it in 1932, just six years later the town of Granville bought it and opened the gardens to the public. In 1997, it became the first Musée de France dedicated to a couturier. Next up in our footnotes for further exploration are Coco Chanel's Nazi Ties. Google Agent Westminster, yes, like the Abbey. That was Coco Chanel's Nazi codename for her clandestine operations during the war, so it's easy to see why so many are quick to call her a Nazi, but the details are a bit more complex than that. Did you know that part of her duties was to try and broker an end to the war? And that while she was an anti-Semite embittered by the tiny split her Jewish funders of Chanel gave her on fragrance, there is an argument to be made that her collaboration can be understood as the desperate wartime act of an aunt trying to protect flash bargain for her nephew by becoming an informant. Justine will touch more on this in her next installment. And now, a bit about that first topic we got to on this episode, artificial intelligence. AI is on everyone's mind these days with wide-ranging applications across technical and creative fields. Justine touched on the challenges the journalistic profession is facing as these technologies like ChatGPT find an increasing foothold. While AI technology is complex and nuanced, many find issues with the way that they build data and its effect on intellectual property or how it displays jobs. That's all for today's footnotes on part one of our interview with Justine Pickardy, former editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar magazine and illustrious fashion historian and author. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Little Red Village podcast on the streaming platform of your choice. I will see you on the flip side in two weeks on June 26th, part two. Remember, fashion is for everyone.